Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. I'm Carl Thomas, your host for the series, where every week we'll explore the best and the worst bosses, employees, relationships, leadership, management styles, what works, what doesn't, and why, and everything in between. Derek Palmer and I met in the spring of 2002, when my best boss ever, Ron Benzian, tapped me for the second time to head up all sales and marketing for Tickets.com. It became abundantly clear early on that Derek knew more about the live event ticketing business than most anyone in our 300-plus group of full-time employees. He was instrumental in the turnaround and sale of Tickets.com to Major League Baseball Advanced Media in 2005, and he opted to stay on under the new ownership group until 2018, where he managed the London office, heading up all international operations, and eventually becoming the chief operating officer. His understanding and thought leadership of how technology enables not only the sale of tickets for enterprise customers like the Boston Red Sox, Carnegie Hall, the Carrier Dome in Syracuse, and several Olympic Games, but also the all-important end-user consumer experience where speed and accuracy of transactions are the currency of a satisfied customer. He moved back to the States in 2019 with his wife Candace and their two children, Cordelia and Willa, and now resides in Austin, Texas as the chief operating officer of QQ, the leader in dynamic ticket pricing and optimized yield management. He also sits on the board of the prestigious International Ticketing Association, INTIX for short. Derek, it's great having you today. Thanks so much for taking the time to share a little bit of your story. Thanks for having me, Carl. Really looking forward to it. Well, let's start at the beginning here, right? Since we're on the Best Boss Ever podcast, I'd love to know who you believe was the best boss and or mentor that you ever had and how that individual or individuals shaped and guided where you are today. Yeah, well, if I was smart, I'd say my wife, but I don't think that's what you're looking for. So I'll go more, more in the, my professional history. I think the person that really fits that the best is someone we both know when we worked together at Tickets.com, a gentleman named David Kotica. Uh, David was the first senior executive that, that really took the time to listen and, and didn't think that just because they were older, had more business experience and a, you know, a big title, that they knew uh, the ticketing space. I was relatively young at the time, and we didn't always agree, certainly not, but, but he respected that while it you know, could be a silly little industry ticketing, I'd been in it for a while and had you know, a lot of ideas as to what would work and what wouldn't. He also really softened some of my rough edges and made me a better leader and a better manager, uh, which has helped me still to this day. Uh, we remain friends, speak every couple months, or sometimes more frequently when we mock each other's NFL teams. Well, with fall underway and the NFL games just now starting, I hope you'll have more frequency in speaking with David. He's one of my favorite guys of all time. As you know, we worked together twice, firstly at Universal Studios and both of us working for Ron Benzian. And then, you know, Ron got part of the old, the old team back together when he brought us both into Tickets.com. And it's great to hear your experience with David and, and how he impacted, you know, your sort of positioning, but more importantly, what you learned from him and what you took away and how you, and how you managed yourself from then on. 
So you've been in the ticketing space well over 20 years. There aren't that many who have done it. So give us a sense of, of how you started and what led to QQ today. Sure. Although for the stripped down memory lane, I'm going to probably wish I had something stronger than ice water that I've got here with me, but we'll, we'll see how if we get through this. Um, so yeah, I, I, I started off actually answering phones in a call center in Fairfax, Virginia in 1993. So that's one quick change. There used to be call centers. People used to actually have to call up and, and order tickets. It was before the internet had taken off really from an informational standpoint and certainly from a, a transactional standpoint. In 1995, that company, Protix, had won the contract to support the Atlanta 1996 Olympics. And so I had a a small part of that, uh, helping to support that remotely through that call center in Fairfax. After that, we were then lucky enough to be awarded the Sydney 2000 Games. And I found myself packing up and moving halfway around the world and spending two years uh, in Australia working on that project, which, you know, at the time I was, uh, again, much younger than I am today and single. And that was a remarkable, remarkable time to be alive, as you may imagine. It was an amazing opportunity, one, one I'll never forget. The, the Sydney Olympics were the first to have live internet sales. Uh, they had the highest sell-through percentage of ticket sales, actually. Um, and it's the 20th anniversary, I just realized, coming up here in the next week or so, that uh, opening ceremony. So that's an amazing milestone. Like all large events, it wasn't without its challenges, though. The Olympics, by almost by design, are a very political beast. And that certainly was the case in Sydney. Um, very political. There was tremendous pressure around the ticketing program. And that caused sudden and oftentimes crazy changes in policy that, that we on the ground had to satisfy. Literally, there would be times where we would hear something on the radio on the way to work. And it would then we'd have to kind of look at each other and say, how, how exactly are we going to do that? But again, those types of adversity and, and opportunities really, I think, build character and, and really you know, teach you how to work with people and, and try and get the best result possible. It was during that time that I really started considering a career in events and ticketing, not something that I, I thought even really existed. But seeing the level of complexity and all the people that have worked and, and how you know you connect to the live event experience really sparked something in me. And I think that's what, what really kept me going uh, in this space for, for so long. I remember standing on a scaffold overlooking opening ceremonies at Homebush, and one of my great friends and mentors, John Baziljevac, known to everyone in the world as John B, saying, don't ever forget that not one of these people would be here if it wasn't something for you did. And it wasn't me. It was the team. It was everyone that worked to support these things. But it's a statement that sticks with you as you see you know, tens of thousands of people walking into events. And it's not just the Olympics. It's, you know, people work in sports or arts or museums or anything across this space, knowing that what you do day to day impacts something that is precious to these people that spend both their time and money to connect with. And, you know, those of us who work in this space, we're, we're really lucky. We, we work with some of the most iconic, life-changing events, brands, you know, circumstances in the world. You know, that's that's a really interesting point, Derek, because a lot of times, well, in your description of Sydney, a lot of that was real time or very recent time. But what we've learned, and I know you have some of this in your background and your story as well, 
is what you did five or 10 or 15 years ago actually comes home to roost much later. And I think the Sydney Olympic Games certainly was that for me. I didn't attend Sydney, but I worked all through the 80s and most of the 90s on the sport of triathlon and was a founding member and the first treasurer of the International Triathlon Union, which is the International Federation for the Sport of Triathlon. And triathlon debuted as a full medal Olympic sport, both men and women, at Sydney in 2000. So Sydney will always have sort of a special place in my history. It was awesome to watch on television. I wish I had had the opportunity to be there in person, but Sydney was one of the great Olympic Games ever staged, in my opinion. I, I agree, obviously, but uh, yeah, no, it, it was uh, it was a magical time, and you know what you just touched on is, is kind of the point. I have such great respect for someone who's passionate as a fan of really anything, because you have to give so much of your life, and to to imagine bringing a sport to fruition to a full medal, I mean, that's a tremendous accomplishment. Like you said, that's something that you, you'll you'll never forget, and for as long as triathlon is still being competed, you're a part of that. And, and that, that's amazing. I mean, I, I don't have to like the event or, or what's going on, but when you see someone light up about something they're passionate about, whether it's curling in the Winter Olympics, they could nice swimming, opera, darts, whatever it is, that's part of what makes us human and kind of connects us beyond the other things in the world. So, yeah, I, I always look back on Sydney quite fondly. So Sydney was the last time I worked directly on the Olympics. I, I, I managed some teams that, that worked on some of the other ones, as you referenced. I helped support Salt Lake, Torino, and the last one that we worked on was Vancouver in 2010. And that was really special for me because I was lucky enough to run with the Olympic torch uh, and carry the torch in front of Niagara Falls, which is you know, truly a magical experience. I still have the torch in my, in my uh, bedroom, as a matter of fact. But it's funny because one of the things that they tell torchbearers is that there's only one flame. And as you pass it from each person, you're passing that from yourself to the next person, to the next person. And that connects you through all of time. And I think that that's you know, kind of interesting, given your story of, of seeing sport come to fruition, is knowing that everyone that carries that torch for that games is kind of forever connected by that experience. Well, that's 100% accurate, for sure. So as Cindy was wrapping up, this is you know, 2000 going to 2001, uh, Tickets.com accomplished something really amazing. They signed the first ever league-wide deal with Major League Baseball Advanced Media to provide online ticketing services to all of the teams. Prior to that, teams were able to select their preferred provider, and there wasn't a huge focus on the online experience. Again, the internet was still pretty nascent in regards to transactions. But the the folks at BAM realized that that was going to be coming, and Tickets.com was well-positioned to be able to deliver that. It was a massive game-changer, obviously, for the company as well, from a size and scope standpoint. And for the way league-based ticketing is still viewed today, to be perfectly honest, it wasn't that well thought through. You know, like many great ideas, certainly in the beginning, there's a lot of, well, we'll figure that out later. And that pile of we'll figure it out later got pretty high pretty quick. I think there was a lot of focus on the marketing aspects and the brand aspects and the, you know, all the benefits there without a lot of really thinking about the plumbing. And if you think of kind of early 2000s technology, 
trying to figure out how to make all those things work together was really, really difficult. And it's, it's still difficult today, but certainly very difficult then. There were a number of players that provided ticketing services to baseball. There was Ticketmaster, Tickets.com, Pacquiolan, Audience View. And as if that wasn't difficult enough, you had a couple clubs that essentially built their own bespoke applications utilizing a, a platform called AS400. And so this idea that Tickets.com was, quote unquote, just going to be able to sell online tickets to all of these clubs without contemplating or integrating with all those different backends was just impossible. And so that integration effort was a massive undertaking that people really haven't understood. Right. And it's highly technical. And for our audience, when you reference a back end, sort of put that in in lay terms. The internet ticketing engine that made tickets.com what it was had to talk to all of these different platforms, which you've referred to as the back end. Correct. So if you think of the internet as a storefront, right, just like as people purchase, you know, whether it's on Amazon or anything today, that's an interface that eventually ties back into an inventory management system. And when it's a one-to-one relationship, I'm buying a ticket from Store X off Store X's website, that's pretty easy because it's written to work together. But when you're connecting through a Nexus or a web, if you excuse the pun, of back office ticketing systems that don't know anything about each other and, quite frankly, compete against each other for these businesses outside of baseball, the amount of work necessary to connect each one of them with their own idiosyncrasies but provide a consistent user and end-user experience online, that's the complexity that I'm really talking about. And it is... It still keeps me up at night, I guess, if I think about it. And I mean, you know, and deservedly so, but folks like you think about the plumbing all the time and a seamless plumbing infrastructure or near seamless really manifests itself in the user experience, the consumer experience with speed, with accuracy and with clarity and really set the stage for one of the huge transactional platforms in the globe around ticketing. And you know, you've played a serious part of that. I wanna move a little further afield here. So one of the things I know you and I worked together on was selling tickets.com to Major League Baseball. And my recollection is, you know, I sat with Ron and David and the three of us, you know, talked through what was next for tickets.com because we were competing with Goliath in the marketplace, right? The biggest, the biggest gorilla in the jungle was, was Ticketmaster. And it was nearly impossible for us to, you know, get business away from Ticketmaster because they just opened up their checkbook and kept writing checks to big A-list clients and we could not crack the code. So Ron and David and I talked about the idea of consolidating Tickets.com with our nearest competitor, which at the time was Pacquiolan. And we actually, through our ownership group, General Atlantic Partners, opened very serious discussions with Pacquiolan on a sort of a merger platform where we could bring number two and number three together and create some scale. And in our minds, effectively 
begin to be able to compete with Ticketmaster. And I know what happened at that point was because Pacquiao was also a major league baseball provider, as were we, word got back to MLB advanced media that this discussion was going on, which was sort of the last thing Major League Baseball advanced media wanted to happen. And from the moment that word got out, it was just probably three months, maybe four, for the completion of that acquisition to Major League Baseball advanced media. And obviously, David Kottiger, Ron Benzian, and I all moved on, but you opted to stay and you stayed for quite a while. Catch us up quickly over the next sort of 12 years on the role you played and how you rose to the chief operating officer. So yes, those were very, very interesting times as you, as you, as you mentioned. I think you know, a merger and acquisition of Pacquiao at that time would have been would have made a lot of sense because they were very dominant and remain very dominant in the college athletics space, which is not something that, that we had cracked particularly well. And it would have been a big project, but I think long term it, it, it was a smart strategy. And I think you know what BAM did, or sorry, Major League Baseball Advanced Media. I still, I still refer to them as BAM, even though now it's, it's really just Major League Baseball. What they knew, and it was amazing that they could look this far down a field, was that the way that consumers were going to interact with brands, i.e., the teams and the clubs and baseball as an entity, and the way that they wanted to drive digital engagement. Uh, new platforms and things like that was going to be critical for the sport to move forward and certainly for the industry to move forward. And what they also realized was that they weren't going to be able to build that unless they completely controlled the experience. And I think that ultimately is what drove the acquisition. They said, you know what? I'm tired of asking. We're your largest client. We've got all these ideas. We know what we want to do. We need someone to do it. And so what really intrigued me and found, you know, as a great opportunity post-acquisition was being a part of that. You know, I spoke with Bob Bowman, who was the chief executive officer, obviously, of Michigan Baseball Advanced Media, and some of the other folks. And they really laid out that vision in a way that was exciting for me. I've always been a bit of a builder, you know, as you, as you kind of listen to what I've done. I'm not technical. I'm not an engineer. I don't code. I don't do any of those things, but I'm, I'm a process person and I'm a structural person. And so the idea of trying to build organizations and support organizations to help deliver this, you know, grand experience to the fan was something that was really exciting to me. And the, the other thing that they, you know, kind of touched on was that we realized that the existing technology really of all the players was not good enough. And so there was discussion about building an entirely new engagement platform, which ended up being the pro venue platform for tickets.com and being able to be a part of that and and really talk to the customers, talk to the competitors, talk to people who had been in the space for a long time, people who said, yeah, you know, if I could do it all over again, I'd do it this way. And that became a really, really interesting project for me that went for you know, really from 2005 until we launched it in 2010 in North America. So, so it certainly took up, you know, a lot of time there. There was a, a, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, as they say. But during that time, 
yeah, I, I became less and less of, a, of an operator, I guess, and kind of rose through the ranks of management from a vice president of operations to chief commercial officer to you know, chief operating officer. And it was then during kind of that role that uh, a large portion of our non-North American and international business kind of came, came under my purview. And at the time, we had legacy relationships that we hadn't really done anything for with in, in quite some time because of the focus on baseball in North America and trying to replatform. But you know, we had significant partners and significant business in the UK, in Germany, in the Netherlands, and in Australia. And so we started thinking, what are we going to do with these things? Because they were, you know, profitable businesses, but we hadn't invested really the human capital or the technical capital to prepare them for that next stage that we're starting to finally get to in North America. And so we we looked at a couple different options. And obviously we could have sold those businesses off. We could have tried to partner with them. But when we really looked at them and the business opportunities that were out there, you know, I and, and others, you know, as part of a team looking at that, said we should really invest in them because we've got a good thing here with pro venue and, and, and we're going to always be in the proverbial knife fight with um, Ticketmaster and others in, in North America where the model is, is very different than financial models, quite different than outside of North America. But if we can take our technology and adapt it and make it kind of fit for purpose outside of North America, we can have a real real, you know, real opportunity there. And unbeknownst to me, I somehow talked myself into yet another job and was asked to move to London. Our office uh, remains, the TTC office remains in Milton Keynes, which is about an hour north of London. And to, to really, you know, kind of do what I had done previously, build those structures, build out some processes, identify gaps, work with a really, really great team in all those different offices to understand, you know, what is the, the nuance. And, and in some cases, those nuances are absolutely critical. Like you cannot, you know, do business in certain countries unless you have an integration. Italy is one that comes to mind with the concept of their fiscal code server, which doesn't, you know, try try to explain to people in the U.S. why that's important and get development resources for a little bit of business in Italy was a, was quite a challenge. And, and same thing with, you know, data protection, things like that. Just all, all, this, all the challenges of working with different cultures and different countries. And it ended up becoming a massive Massive project, um, not not unlike the the one that we did with baseball, quite frankly. And well, and 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 obviously, you were successful at executing it. And I and I just want to not only call you out, but that early team of Tickets.com included two folks that I know are still very close friends of yours, and they are of mine. Cole Gehagen, who yep. is currently the CEO of Learfield Sports. Yep. A huge job, particularly in the face of what's gone on with the pandemic over the past six to seven months. And Kim Dameron, Kim No, back in the day. And yep. she's been CEO of Pacquiola now for, for quite a few years. So the three of you, two with CEO titles and yourself on your second chief operating officer role, I think is a testament to the quality of people that we were able to attract, hire, and keep at tickets.com, as well as obviously the platforming across the live event space, whether it's ticketing or sponsorship or media rights, which Cole is wrestling with right now, as you know, 
The point being that all of these various elements intersect and they pivot off each other. We've got about five minutes left, Derek, and there are two things I'd love for you to cover quickly. One, exactly what you do at QQ and explain to our audience the concept around yield management and dynamic pricing. Sure. So QQ, as you mentioned at the beginning, is uh, primarily known as a dynamic pricing company. It was, in fact, the first company to bring dynamic pricing to live sports entertainment through a partnership with the San Francisco Giants, QQ, and Tickets.com at the time. And the, the irony is that I was part of the team on the TDC side. When I left London after being with TDC for 25, 26 years, there was a real lifestyle choice. I decided that I wanted to take a step back, move back to the States, and work with a smaller company to kind of kind of slow things down a little bit. And I'd known the founder of QQ from its inception and was always very, very intrigued by it. So the concept of dynamic pricing is using data science-driven algorithms to price tickets properly in the marketplace. And that means both in your primary ticketing application marketplace, as well as the distribution channels that are available in some cases through the secondary market. So being able to look at how should I price my tickets and what strategy should I put in place to help distribute my tickets as a rights holder so that I can achieve my business goals. Those goals may be maximize revenue, obviously, maximize yield in the case of a potentially distressed inventory standpoint, or maximize sell-through rates. And that could be a mixture of through pricing and distribution. So that's what dynamic pricing and kind of yield management does. And yeah, I started with TQ January 2nd, 2019. I've been very focused on kind of helping them, again, build structures, expand into new, new verticals, expand into new regions, and then obviously the COVID hit, which which kind of shut everything down for right now. Well, right. And the live event business, whether it's music, sport, museums, other performing arts environment, whether it's opera or, or Broadway, are essentially shut. And the fundamental part of that is really, I think, it's state power. Is Live Nation going to go away anytime soon? No. Is Ticketmaster which Live Nation owns, going to go away? No. But companies like QQ, which are not massive in terms of, you know, financial structure, is there a concern that you have that QQ might not make the turn out when the fog lifts? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's something we, we obviously look at every day. I mean, live entertainment was the first to shut down. It was basically March 13th, the entire faucet was turned off. And we are, in many ways, despite, you know, NFL coming back with small fans or PGA tour, things like that, we're not much closer to being back at full strength today than we were on March 14th. And you're right, there's a significant you know, crush on certainly that hidden economy of live entertainment. People look at it and they see, hey, someone's on stage or someone's on a field, everything must be fine. But in reality, there are hundreds of, and in some cases, thousands of people that go into putting on live entertainment. And, you know, we, we really still need relief more than talking about recovery with other parts of the economy, which I spend an awful lot of my time working on. I mean, Kiku is lucky. We, we have a you know, very strong book of business. We've got very long-standing relationships and clients. And, you know, that's what we're looking at is basically what you just said. When things come back, 
you know, we believe things will be great. We're just making hopefully the right decisions to make sure that that is the case. We've been very lucky with some of our partners in them, you know, making sure that we're one of those bills that they actually pay because they see the value that we certainly bring to them when events come back. And, you know, the whole concept of pricing coming out of this, as you may imagine, is critical. Any type of financial modeling or or forecast modeling that you did prior to COVID-19 is pretty much worthless. And you're going to need partners like QQ to to help really understand what the market can bear. And that's not necessarily or always, you know, what's the most I can charge. You know, there are 10 million people out of work in America. So how do you maximize, again, that yield that you can get while still making your product accessible to folks that really want to engage with it. And, you know, there will always be the people or the companies, the corporations that can spend a bunch of money. But what our tools allow you to do is to make decisions that in some cases allows you to, yeah, make money in certain sections or certain places that maybe you didn't have access to previously, but also be able to then make decisions that can lower prices in other sections to make tickets more accessible to, you know, maybe students or just people who otherwise couldn't come to the event. And, you know, there's nothing better in the world than being at a live event. And true, true that, true that you you and I have, have had our share. And I think the pent up demand for attending live events when the fog does lift is going to be, is going to be pretty dramatic. Listen, you, I know, I've known you for a long time. You're a very smart individual. I know you would not have joined QQ if you didn't have respect for the intelligence and the platforming of the founders. And I'm super glad to hear that you guys are adapting because that's what all of this is about, adaptation. And I, and I know that 12 months from now, QQ will still be here with us. Listen, we've got only about two minutes left. And I want to move to our quick bite section. So three things for you. First, the favorite mistake that you made and the one you learned the most from. Okay. Hmm. When I made a lot, which I think probably covers both of those, is it's not all about you. In these situations, when you're working with high pressure situations, different organizations and things like that, sometimes you just have to take a step back and say, you know what? It's not about me. It's doing the right thing. As I said, I was given a ton of leeway in my job when I was younger. And you know, that probably in some cases made me a bit arrogant with the, I know what to do. And you know, that was one of the things David really helped me with was empathy and listening and building you know, cohesion and coalition to, to get the best solution. Well, that's great. That's a great context for our audience because we've probably all suffered a little bit of that. And Kudos to you, A, for recognizing it, and B, to David for helping you with it. So that's awesome. The second thing is, and I do this with with every guest, I'm a huge fan of female artists and bands. So right now, tell us who your all-time favorite female artist or band is. Right now, and I'll probably get laughed at for this, but I'm going to go with Taylor Swift. I've been so fascinated by her evolution and her career. Um, I I saw her live in D.C. and also in London at at the Brit Awards. And I just think the way that she has packaged herself as an artist is really, really interesting. Oh, she's not only a ridiculously talented artist, but her character, her demeanor, her approach to her 
profession and the humility with which she addresses it, I think that's a great choice, a great choice. Lastly, we all believe words matter. I do, and every one of my guests does as well. I know you do. So give us your favorite word and what it means to you and why. Well, you know, I like to curse, so there's lots of good options out there, but I'll, I'll keep it uh, at least PG rated. So I, you're right. I love words. Absolutely. I, I think I think they're fantastic. So I'll choose purpose. And the reason why I choose purpose is it's the perfect word that encompasses, you know, not only what you do, but why you do it and perhaps how you do it. And that how you do it, I think, can really expose character. And so I think a person's purpose or the purpose of what you're doing is really important. That is a great word. And there's a reason that we say, do it on purpose. Yep. With intention. I love that. Derek, you have been awesome. It's so great to hear your voice again. And I hope this is the sort of starting point for a rekindling of a, of a relationship that I've cherished over the years. Good luck to you, Candace, and the two girls in Austin. Girl. Stay cool because Texas <laughs> can be hot. Thanks again, and good luck to you, your family, and Q2. Thanks, Carl. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everybody. There's more to come every week, so please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Also, visit our website at thebestbossever.com, where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn, as well as find more compelling content. Until next week, remember, words matter.